Hi, everyone. I'm Colby Horton. And I'm Frank Humata. And we'd like to welcome you to this episode of Engaging in the Next, an original podcast from Association Briefings, where we talk about what's next for the association community when it comes to technology, Marcom strategy, people, membership, and money. Oh, Frank, what do we have here? Who's this guest star with you? I know y'all haven't formally met, but this is my dog, Pingo, Colby. <laughs> and I apologize to our listeners. This, this might be the only time I want a video version of this podcast. You know, aside from that time you lost the bet and had to wear a Yankees hat all day. Yeah, there will never be footage of that very low moment in my life. Washed my hair twice a day for a week to get rid of all the, the negative vibes. Yeah, we'll see about that. Um, anyways, with our actual podcast guest being the president and CEO of the Pet Advocacy Network, I thought it might make sense to get Pingo involved. You know, it also doesn't hurt that our guest is a former Jeopardy champion and Kansas City barbecue certified judge, and Pingo happens to love game shows and pulled pork. I mean, who, who doesn't like good barbecue? I'd love to get into a debate on what the heck Burt ends are, but maybe maybe that should be left to a different episode. Because in this episode, we're talking association advocacy with Mike Bober of the Pet Advocacy Network and possibly Pingo's hero. No offense, Frank. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> you know, if an association wants to be the voice of its industry, advocacy is a huge part of that. Advocacy is often fueled by passion, passion for the industry, uh, passion for its businesses and consumers, passion for the future. And it's really up to associations to ignite that passion and get members in front of elected officials, whether that's in person at fly-ins or advocacy days or through well-thought-out emails originating from the association. In this episode, Mike will drop a few F-words to help your members effectively communicate with lawmakers, establishing both rapport and credibility with lawmakers before there's a problem. So one of the F-words, Frank? We can only hope. <laughs> Mike leads the Pet Advocacy Network, the legislative and regulatory voice of the responsible pet professional community. His honors include being named one of Pet Age's 40 Under 40 in 2016, a World Pet Association Positive Impact Award honoree in 2020, a National Institute of Lobbying and Ethics Top Lobbyist of 2021, and an Association Trends 2022 Leading Association Lobbyist. He has also been named to Pet Age's Power 50 in 2021 and 2022. And we've got a few more distinctions up our sleeves to showcase later in the episode. So welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. We're excited about this conversation. So, you know, I think a lot of us in the association community just kind of fell into this space. So to get us started, how about telling us a little bit about your career journey in the association space and what's led to your passion for advocacy? That's a great question. I've been at the Pet Advocacy Network now for 10 years, but before this, I actually wasn't in the association space at all. I came to associations by way of campaigns, politics. And what I did before this, I was the coalitions director for one of the national parties. And it was my job to work with candidates to help them sort of answer the old Sesame Street question, who are the people in your neighborhood? And what I found was that uh, as we were building those coalitions, that there was a real need out there for people to work with folks who could help them tell their stories, who could make sure that their voices were 
were getting through to their elected officials. And that kind of instilled in me a desire to do a little bit more on the advocacy side. That and the fact that I, uh, I had a daughter while I was in the middle of a, a campaign season and I decided that I really didn't like the idea of having to essentially go away from Labor Day to Election Day. I wanted to get into a world where I could really be a, a more regular presence. And advocacy seemed to allow that work-life balance. Uh, the association world was a lot friendlier to families. And uh, it all worked out well. I found an organization that was looking for somebody with a background in government affairs and coalition building and have been here ever since. And fortunately, it was a community that I felt pretty passionately about in the first place, which was helping people connect with companion animals. That's great. I'm not going to lie. I have the uh, Who Are the People in Your Neighborhood song in my head right now. So thanks for that. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> and Mike, why should advocacy be more proactive than reactive? Advocacy should always be proactive. I like to tell the people that, that we work with that there's never a bad time to share good news. And that means that if you're taking the time to really bring somebody into your conversation and tell your story when it isn't urgent, uh, you've really done yourself a tremendous favor. You've allowed yourself to start a conversation on neutral, if not positive terms. And as a result, you can have a conversation that, that develops more organically and doesn't feel as transactional. I think if you're always the guy who comes in needing something or opposed to something, uh, you get a reputation. If instead you're the person who comes in offering and wanting to help and looking for ways to get involved, you're definitely going to get the call back a lot more often. And so I think the real benefit of being proactive about things is the ability to set that pace and to start a conversation in a much more positive way. That's great advice. I think we're going to hit on several of those points as we go through this particular episode. Now, Frank and I, you know, we certainly aren't experts in advocacy best practices. I think that's really one of the main reasons we wanted to, you know, put your expertise front and center here. Frank, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this year we've produced dozens of podcasts for our association partners that focus on advocacy efforts. So, you know, we definitely understand the importance of advocacy for associations. So when it comes to effectively communicating with lawmakers, you've spoken about the four Fs. So I'd <laughs> like to, to really kind of discuss those. Where do we start? Yeah, I'm one of those people that likes to, to boil things down to concepts that are a little bit easier to remember. And so uh, early on in what I was doing with engaging our local activists, I hit upon the idea that there are four Fs that go into really effective legislative communications and their face, facts, focus, and follow-up. And when you put all of those together, you get that relationship building that really is essential to that kind of advocacy that isn't just transactional. So the first one, face, what I like to do is I like to remind people that for most of the people that they're going to be interacting with, whether they're legislative staff or members or other elected officials, our organizations really are something unknown. They probably don't come from our community. And so for a meeting that brings a constituent together with an office, they really do represent the face of our community. They are going in as someone that is possibly the only point of contact that that office is going to have with a very big, very broad community. And so it's an opportunity, but it's also, frankly, a, uh, a little bit of a challenge. It, it requires people to step up and to recognize that not only are they there to tell their story, 
but they're there to represent everybody that they work with and their colleagues and competitors alike. I think the next thing that we, we like to talk about is the second F, which is facts. And that is, uh, it's all well and good to go in as a face and to, to be friendly and, and to have those casual and comfortable conversations. But in order to be an effective advocate, you also have to have command of the information. And that's where facts really becomes that second F that we need people to work on and to do the preparation. I like to remind people that facts are important, not just for what you do know, but also what you don't know. Because one of the things that uh, we find is really a, a way to destroy credibility and to ruin a relationship is for an advocate to play fast and loose with facts, to make up statistics on the spot or to substitute hearsay or rumors for something that's verifiable and demonstrable. We like people to be able to say uh, and to know that it's okay to say, I don't know that. Let me look it up and get back to you or let me put you in touch with somebody who does. You know, I think that in an ideal relationship with a lawmaker's office, it's not that you're the be-all, end-all, that you're the expert who knows everything every time, but rather that you are somebody with both the experience and the expertise who can be a conduit and a connector. That's kind of the, the ideal. I think having facts at your hands and, and working with an association is tremendously helpful. Because in the association space, one of the things that I think we all do very well is to arm our advocates with those facts. My organization just partnered with four other organizations that represent aspects of the companion animal community, uh, and we conducted a second update to our economic impact study. This is something that really helps our advocates go in and tell the story of what the pet care community means to congressional offices, to states, to their elected officials. So arming them with those facts and then helping them put the facts into context while they're telling their story together makes for a much more compelling meeting and something that doesn't just start a conversation, but helps to steer a conversation as well. Yeah, I think lawmakers look to associations to be the experts in the industry and to be able to bring the members in on whether it's fly-ins or advocacy days or hill days or whatever you want to call it and be the face of the association, therefore be the face of the industry is right. extremely important. And I think a lot of what you're saying right now, even to be able to go in there and, and be the voice, but not necessarily say, I know everything, Right. to be that person to say, well, I can tell you from my point of view, Here's how it works. Oh, and by the way, let me get with my association. Let me get with other constituents within your area and let's talk about it a little bit more. I think you're, you, you hit the nail on the head that you don't have to have all the answers here, but it is up to the associations to provide those facts to the members to at least have them be able to go in and be a credible source, be a credible voice of the industry. So I, I think that's great. Your two first Fs are, are wonderful. What's next? Yeah, thanks. Uh, the, the third F is one that, that's actually important to kind of keep the conversation going in the right direction, and that's focus. You know, it's all well and good to get the meeting and to go in, you know, loaded for bear and ready to, to really kind of dig in and tell that staffer everything you need them to know to basically dump on them 20 years worth of your own personal anecdotes and experience. But that's not the way these meetings work. And, and if anything, it's actually counterproductive. You know, we all know that staff are very busy. They're trying to work on, on a wide range of issues. 
And so when you get a, a 20 to 30 minute meeting with somebody, uh, we really try to stress to our advocates the importance of going in with a very focused message. Distill what you're trying to say down to two or three key points, back them up with specific examples, make sure you've got a specific ask in mind and that you communicate it clearly and directly. And don't let yourself get taken off on tangents. Don't start a conversation about a, a completely unrelated issue while I've got you kind of thing. You know, we find that it's hard for some people to kind of rein themselves in because they do kind of see this as a uh, as a one shot opportunity. And for those of us who work in the association space, I think one of the, the best things that we can do for our advocates is to help them understand that this should never be a one and done. This should always be the first or the next or just another meeting in the course of a, a long relationship and conversation. Because if we do that, I think it takes some of the stress out of things and it really allows people to to relax and to to stay on message. We just don't have the luxury of monopolizing the time of the people that we're working with. You know, we want to be respectful of them and we want them to see us as, as people that they know that if we're reaching out for a meeting, it has a specific purpose. It has a, a specific end point and they're not going to be just, you know, sitting there. Uh-huh. 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 What next? So we try to counsel and we try to prepare people that the best possible interaction is one that actually ends a little bit ahead of time because you've shown them that you've delivered your message and you're ready to move on. I bet that's probably the most challenging for any association member. Oh, it's challenging for us. It's challenging yeah. for the professionals too. I mean, we all have that Columbo instinct to turn around and just say one more thing. Right. And, and the passion too, right? The more passionate you are about a subject, the more you want to talk. So that 20 to 30 minute conversation, yeah, it, it doesn't get wrapped <laughs> up unless you can reel them in. So yeah, I think that's a huge challenge. And again, something that the association should prepare the members for before any fly-in or advocacy day or whatever. That's right. And that's something that I think we've had sort of a, a little bit of a trial and error with over the years to help people understand, first of all, they have to get comfortable. There is that period of uncertainty for a lot of folks that comes with the idea that, you know, it's sort of the, the, the great Oz situation. You know, there's, there's a little bit of an intimidation factor. And so the more that we can do to prepare our members to go in and, and not be intimidated, but to interact with these people as peers, by the way, that is important to, to kind of make sure you level set at peers. You know, the last thing you want is a, uh, an activist going in and telling people, you know, uh, I pay your salary or you work for me. But if you can have that conversation where it, it really is kind of a, a casual and comfortable thing, that's the best for everyone. Sure, you had those cringeworthy moments. I'm mm -hmm. sure we could talk offline about those. <laughs> Just a few. And so how, how do we wrap up the four Fs? Well, the last F is uh, one that, that I think really kind of makes the difference between a meeting and a relationship, and that's follow-up. I think that the most successful engagements are the ones that have a, a very well thought out follow up. We like to encourage our attendees for our legislative fly in each year to loop back with the people that they've met with, usually about two to three weeks afterwards. 
You don't want to do it right away because, again, these are busy people with many competing issues on their plates. But you don't want to let it go so long that when you do reach out, it's uh, it takes them a while to remember who you were and why you're talking in the first place. So a, a good follow-up, uh, a handwritten thank you note is certainly welcome, especially at the local and state levels. But even a simple email just to say, hey, appreciate your time. And then a planned follow-up two to three weeks later that says, just wanted to loop back with you about that item we were discussing. I saw this article and I thought you might find it useful. Here's the fact sheet that I was telling you about that I didn't have handy the last time we met. You know, it's kind of the old uh, the leave behind move in a relationship where uh, if you've got a, uh, a hook, a reason to kind of loop back with that person, it really kind of takes some of the awkwardness out of the follow-up. And in this case, if you've had a good conversation and you've started the process of talking through an issue with someone, plan ahead for what that follow-up is going to be. You know, what is it that you can bring to them to reinforce and to remind them about the conversation you've already had without feeling like you're starting to either take it in a whole different direction or otherwise just start to belabor things? Mike, you referenced a handwritten note or an email being great ways to follow up with the lawmaker, but what's the association's role in the follow-up process? Well, the association has uh, a very important role to play, and that's the uh, that's sort of the conduit or the liaison role. You know, we're working with these organizations and these offices on a daily basis. And so if we can facilitate that interaction and then also amplify it, that really makes things a lot more effective. You know, we want our individual constituents, our members to be the face of what we do. But then because we are the ones working on this day in and day out, it's incumbent on us to kind of keep the conversation going so that it's not just a one-on-one -on -one between, you know, a pet store owner in Peoria and the congressional staffer. You know, it's really our job to kind of shape the conversation and keep it flowing. I think when it comes to advocacy efforts from associations, association members, this is really a lot of the members' first time to actually talk to a lawmaker, to be face-to-face -face with them and just talk about the issues at hand. So what advice can you give an association member when they are preparing to reach out to lawmakers about a specific issue? And does that preparation change based on you know, local, state, or federal scenarios? I mean, here in Texas, our legislature meets every two years. So the urgency of getting in front of those lawmakers is quite heightened in comparison to other regions. So how best to prepare here? Yeah. One of the things I always like to say is that all politics is local-ish, which is to say that, that there is you know sort of this universal framework of how you go about preparing. But then, like you said, there's, there's a local flavor to everyone's individual experiences. You know, certainly preparing for it, first and foremost, you want to get yourself to a place where you've done a little bit of homework. And that's where the association that you work with can be an invaluable resource for you, you know, to help you understand who it is that you're reaching out to, what are their backgrounds, what are their passions, what are their points of, of overlap with your community. But then also there's a requirement that you get yourself to a place where you are comfortable giving sort of the elevator pitch version of who you are and what you do. And it does come down to reminding yourself sometimes that you are dealing with human beings. These are just people. 
it's not this thing where, you know, the heavens have parted and the light shone down and, and the guy that you're meeting with is, you know, some sort of deity brought to earth. This is just another human being doing their job and their job is to work with you. So having the the mindset that says this is going to be a casual, collaborative conversation really goes a long way toward taking some of the uncertainty and the, the tension out of these things. Uh, but again, in an ideal world, the association is really doing a lot of that legwork to help their advocates, their members go in at ease to the extent possible. And Mike, can you talk a little bit how technology plays an important role in advocacy? Yeah, we uh, over the years, we've certainly seen the uh, the ways that people interact with their lawmakers grow and change. And, you know, I think right now, I'm sure everybody says this whenever they're talking, but right now we're in an amazing time for advocacy because there are so many tools at our disposal. You know, one of the, the silver linings of the past few years is that virtual communications have gotten to the point where they're mainstream. People can reach out and communicate with their elected officials from the comfort of their own home for good and for ill. And I think so part of that really does come down to figuring out the most effective and compelling ways to use the technology that's available to you. One of the things that we've seen over time is as certain tools and techniques evolve, they kind of reach a point where they get overused or they get uh, taken advantage of, and then you see a backlash. A uh, great example is the uh, the kind of electronic communication tools that are out there where organizations can put out a petition and just say, click here and let your lawmaker know what you're thinking. You know, that's all well and good if everybody is using their own voice, if everyone is taking that opportunity to click, but then to personalize. You know, one of the things that you want to avoid is what we call commentary by the pound. You know, we don't want situations where thousands of people have submitted the same three-sentence comment because it becomes very clear at that point that these aren't people who are truly advocating. They're simply responding to a prompt. You know, as, as you see these technologies kind of rise and fall, what matters more often than not is authenticity. And it, it's the ability for the association to be that conduit between those individual voices and the lawmakers and the staff that really are dependent on that feedback in order to make good policy. All good points. So I want to end here. You know, the Pet Advocacy Network was once the Pet Industry Joint Advisory Council. Y'all went through a rebrand in, in March of 2022. I love a good rebrand story, but this is more than just a, a logo or a mission change. So do you mind telling us a little bit about the association's rebrand and its impact specifically on the organization's advocacy efforts. Absolutely. The Pet Industry Joint Advisory Council had been in existence since uh, December of 1971. Coming up on our 50th anniversary, one of the things that we did was to really kind of take a long, hard look at the effectiveness of everything that we did. And what we found was, like many things, 50 years had gone by and, and not everything that we were doing was really serving the mission to the best of its ability. You know, we've all kind of had those horror stories out there about advocacy falling flat because it comes from a place that's seen as less than authentic. And so for us, you know, trying to go into a meeting and introduce ourselves as the pet industry, there's a red flag. 
joint advisory, there's a red flag, council, yeah, we found that our name and our, our mission were at odds with one another. So, you know, we really, we, we didn't approach this lightly. You know, we recognized that we had 50 years worth of history that we, we wanted to be respectful of, but we sat down and we talked through it and we, we asked ourselves, you know, who are we and what do we do? And we are pets and we do advocacy. And so kind of cutting through all of the noise around that, we realized that we are the Pet Advocacy Network. We advocate for pets. And so the rebrand allowed us to kind of clean that up and it's become significantly easier when we go into meetings with offices to cut through that first five minutes of establishing who we are because it's right there in the name. And we really have found that it's led to much more positive responses and receptions, and it's allowed our advocacy to proceed more smoothly. Well, Michael, I want to thank you and really appreciate you being a part of today's discussion. Yeah, this has been a pleasure. Well, now we'd like to put you in the hot seat <laughs> one last time. Yeah, what final. do you got? Well, it's a final segment. We like to call the briefings minute. So we're going to fire off a series of questions just to learn a little more about you. So okay. give us the first answer that comes to mind. Are you ready? Uh, go for it. Yeah, here we go. So if space wasn't an issue as a child, what would have been your dream pet? Ooh, uh, as a child, I think my dream pet would have been a dinosaur. Probably, probably something big like a Stegosaurus or a Triceratops. I, uh, I was a big fan of the, the four-legged ground guys. That's perfect. I don't know if this segues into this next question or not, but hey, you know your barbecue here. Uh, <laughs> you're a Kansas City barbecue certified judge. I am. How did you get that role? And follow-up question, what's the best place in D.C. for barbecue? Ooh, wow. All right. So first, you're asking a good question. Second, you're asking a question that's going to make me a lot of enemies. <laughs> the, uh, the Kansas City Barbecue Society, I actually fell in love with and married a woman from Kansas City. And so uh, in the course of visiting her family over a couple of years, I really was sort of given a very firsthand barbecue education. And then as luck would have it, a, a good buddy from college reached out to me one weekend and said, hey, you know, there's this certification class. It's about a two hour drive from here. I really don't want to make the drive by myself. Are you interested? And so I said, yeah, what the heck? And we uh, we went out and we, we did it. And now I am the proud owner of a big green egg. So I like to uh, do my own barbecue at home. But I would say that the best barbecue in D.C., the most consistent, the, the most impressive, is probably Federalist Pig. I'm a big fan of what they do, and I like not only their traditional stuff, but I also like some of the more creative flyers that they take as well. Now, what are Pets Forever stamps, and which one is your favorite? <laughs> oh, okay. The Pets Forever stamps were a, uh, a series that were put out by the uh, U.S. Postal Service, geez, at this point, probably about six or seven years ago. And it, it was actually something, a project that I was able to be a part of consulting on. We managed to do their uh, first day of issue unveiling at one of the two big pet industry trade shows that take place every year, Super Zoo, out in Las Vegas. I was involved in working with them to kind of vet the images on the stamps to make sure that they represent presented animals that were true companion animals and also that were legal in most jurisdictions. I would say that my favorite of the stamps is probably the one that uh, that really did just kind of become sort of the face of the whole campaign. And it's a puppy with his head cocked to one side. He's tan with a white stripe down his nose and you can't see it and not smile. Love it. Okay. So you are a Jeopardy champion. 
I am. What question were you most proud of getting right? Ooh, I think I was most proud of my second day final Jeopardy. Uh, it was a uh, pretty lengthy question. At the end of it, it basically was asking for the name of a uh, famous Italian whose first name and last name were very similar to one another. It took a little bit of kind of, you know, jogging in the mind, and I eventually got to Galileo with it. So I was really proud that that worked out. I think the people who know me best are probably most amused by the fact that my two strongest categories were musical theater and fragrances. <laughs> That's great. I don't know what to tell you. Man, we need to have so much more offline conversation about this. Absolutely. <laughs> Mike, with over a decade of working in politics, is there a campaign slogan that stands out most? Ooh. Um... See, now that's of, of all the questions you've asked, that's probably the stumper. You know, I think it's not a campaign slogan, but it's the maxim that has always stuck with me the most. And it's probably because it's the most relevant. And that's if you want a friend in Washington, buy a dog. You know, it's something that people believe Harry Truman said. The truth of the matter is it's actually something that Senator Nancy Kassebaum of Kansas said, and she attributed it to Harry Truman. Uh, nobody's ever been able to verify that the president actually said it, but we think it's pretty relevant even today, and we encourage people to follow through on it. What an appropriate slogan. So what's the most creative pet name you've heard of? Ooh, uh, I think the most creative pet name is the one that my wife came up with for our now three-year-old Cocker Spaniel. Uh, his name is Scruffles. And I'm proud to say that, uh, that we were on the very front end of the pandemic puppy trend. Scruffles came into our house the first week of April in 2020. And so, uh, you know, we, we were definitely on the front lines with that one. Graduating from Georgetown, where was your college hangout? Ooh, there were a couple. Uh, like most Georgetown students, uh, I was a big fan of the tombs, but I also enjoyed going out to Wise Miller's over there on 36th Street. And one of the places that we always like to go, the group that I hung out with, uh, is multiple generations gone at this point. It's a place on Wisconsin Avenue called OPA de Couchon at the foot of the pig. It was one of those places where you kind of patted yourself on the back as a Georgetown student for not only going there and hanging out and, you know, drinking in this French cafe style setup. It was also a place that had a great backstory in that there was a, an attempted spy apprehension that took place there that was foiled when the guy went out the bathroom window and disappeared down one of the nearby alleyways. So it was one of those places that had all the right mix for Georgetown students to be very self-satisfied with. Whoa. Well, Mike, that's the buzzer. Thanks for joining us again today. Absolutely. This is my pleasure, guys. Anytime. Great. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of Engaging in the Next. Join us each month as we discuss trends that impact what's next in the association world. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you'd like more information about association briefings and how we can help your association produce a podcast or a unique data-driven newsletter, be sure to visit us online at associationbriefings.com. See you next time.